Welcome to the podcast for Epworth United Methodist Church in Berkeley, California. Our podcast blends a taste of the music that we experience here in worship on Sunday mornings, along with the scripture reading and a message. We would love for you to take a next step in growing in faith in this community. If you are here in Berkeley, Epworth's worship is at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 1953 Hopkins on the corner of Napa and Hopkins. Or if you connect with our podcast from further away, we would invite you to visit our website, epworthberkeley.org. We'd invite you to keep seeking to grow in faith and to stop by the next time you're in Berkeley. Good morning. Today's reading is from the prophet Jeremiah, and you can find it if you would like to read along on page 698 in the Hebrew scriptures portion of the Bible. It's chapter 1, verses 4 to 10. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, surely, truly, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a boy. But the Lord said to me, Do not say I am only a boy. For you shall go to all to whom I send you, and you shall speak whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to pull down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. The reading of the word.
Thank you, choir. Thank you, Jerry. And it's great to see everybody back here uh, in the sanctuary. There's been, there's been a lot of travel over the summer, um, but I, I, I hope you, as I, we can just feel it, there's this shift of energy in the air. School is starting. And uh, last Tuesday, you know, we have a, a, the two-point charge now where Pastor Brian and I are working with both Epworth and Trinity United Methodist Church. And Trinity is on the other side of Berkeley, directly across the street from the Cal campus. And on, on Tuesday, trying to get into Trinity was in, in, practically impossible. It was insane over there. The, the crush of people and the traffic and students like wheeling their suitcases as if they had come from who knows where, wheeling their suitcase to Berkeley. And, all, and the parents accompanying them marked that the time had come. And those of you who are on the semester system, I think a, a couple of you are lucky enough to be on the quarter system, <laughs> know that the time has come. And the, the four or five years of, a, of, a, of college or the academic program of graduate school are a chapter in life. And uh, you know those, those who are facing a dissertation um, may wonder if the chapter will ever end. But you, you could be like me and just withdraw. You can end the chapter that way. But, the, but the, these chapters are followed by other chapters, chapters and other seasons of life. And each chapter comes with its own learnings, its own potentials, and its own challenges. Some of us are beginning a new academic year right now, and others are starting a new chapter. All of us look forward to the fall, acknowledging that a change of season is coming. One chapter in my life, very different from this one, were the four years I served as Executive Director of the Fellowship of Reconciliation, or, or FOR, a national interfaith peace and justice organization devoted to nonviolent change. Those four years for me were defined by the murder of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. And this month marks the five year anniversary since his death. Michael Brown, as you'll recall, was an unarmed African-American young man, weeks away from starting community college, having graduated high school just a few months before. He was 18 years old. He was shot by a police officer, and though his death was close to instantaneous, he lay in the street and was not taken by ambulance for over four hours, while people of his community surrounded him in mourning and outrage. Michael Brown's death sparked an uprising against racism throughout the system of policing in St. Louis County and in this country, against the, the, the racism that pervades those systems and the inhumanity that would allow a young man to lie bleeding in the street. The response was both a protest and a declaration that not just reforms, but a whole new reality was necessary. From the night Brown was shot on August 9th, 2014, night Tonight after night, tonight after night, the Ferguson front line, as the young activists who led the protests were called, took to the streets, making clear that the crisis wasn't over and their demands must be met. 
These young people made national news and their courage and their insistence on a transformed world fueled the movement for black lives that spread across the nation. In the days after Michael Brown's death, the, the, we, we deployed from the, the Fellowship of Reconciliation, Reverend Osaji Foseku, who was one of our organization's fellows, an activist who grew up in St. Louis, uh, lived for most of his young life just a few miles from Ferguson. And at the time of the, the shooting, he was actually out here at the Stanford King Library working on a book about King. Uh, Seku is a student of the teachings and tactics of King, as well as Stokely Carmichael, who, who gave him his, his, his name. Osaji Foseku is not his given name, his born name, it's his given name. Uh, Stokely Carmichael, of course, being one of the leaders of the Student Nonviolent, Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and then later a leader of the Black Panther movement. Seku became a critical figure in FOR's building of nonviolent infrastructure in Ferguson and St. Louis and a number of other cities that faced police killings of unarmed young African-American men. This encouragement of a nonviolent infrastructure was, in my opinion, one of, one of the pieces that furthered the movement, creating a framework and a community of support and history around the activists on the front line. Seku is my age, so five years ago he was in his mid-40s. And I remember one time we were driving around this, the still very segregated neighborhoods of Ferguson and St. Louis, a couple of months after Michael Brown was shot, and we were, we were talking about the, the youth and the young activists who were really fuel, fueling the movement and, and on the Ferguson front line. And Seku had been out there with them almost every night since he got to town a couple of nights after August 9th. And he said, I'm the old man out there. These young people, they just make me tired. <laughs> and then he paused and he got serious, and, and he said, actually, they're not young or old. They're movement age. They're movement age. And though there were activists of all ages involved in the response to Michael Brown's death, there always has to be activists of all ages. The, the Ferguson front line was 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 years old. They were movement age. They were in the streets night after night after night. You have to have energy to do that. And they were young enough to be, um, you know, not in any way disillusioned or jaded or cynical about their belief in real and dramatic change being possible, not just in their lifetime, but in the near future of their lifetime. And not so old that they had encumbrances or commitments that took them from taking certain risks that are necessary when you're on the front line of a movement. History, of course, is full of movements that were led by young people. We know of the, the Greensboro sit-ins that, that integrated lunch counters in South Carolina and that, that led to freedom rides and the, the founding of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. 
We know that, that youth led the, the protests in this country to divest from uh, South Africa that led to the dismantling of apartheid. And, and I was blessed on our trip to, to Tucson to hear of the, the, young, the, story, the young stories of, of Alan and Rosemary Kimber, who were young pastor and young pastor's family in South Africa at that time, um, pushing on dismantling that racist system. The Velvet Revolution, of course, was the revolution in Czechoslovakia, which was student-led and youth-led, and after 11 days of nonviolent resistance, the, the communist government toppled, and Václav Havel, the poet dissident, became the president of that country. Well, in our scripture today, from the book of Jeremiah, we hear the, 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 the initial call of God to the prophet Jeremiah. We're introduced to this man in chapter one as the book opens. We hear this call from God, but what do we hear from Jeremiah? He's not interested. He's not interested. And he puts up his protest to God's word and he says, ah, Lord God, truly I do not know how to speak for I am only a boy. Well, Jeremiah was, we think, 18 years old. He was movement age. He was movement age. So God, of course, knows what God is doing. Jeremiah is the right person at the right time. So God says to Jeremiah, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Do not say I am only a boy, for you shall go to all whom I send you and shall speak whatever I command you. Jeremiah began to prophesy in the beginning years of the king, of the reign of King Josiah. He, you know, he, it's, hard to, it's hard to not accept a call from God. We have lots of stories in the Bible of people who try to resist. So Jeremiah accepted this call, and um, the King Josiah, who was coming, who was, had just come into power at about the same time, was was also about the same age. He was about the same age as Jeremiah, and um, scholars believe that his reign was one of reforms based on a partial scroll that perhaps from Deuteronomy that was discovered in the repairs of the Temple of Jerusalem. And while Jeremiah affirmed this desire for reforms and this return to righteousness, he decried any focus on the outward forms of religion over true social justice, inner spirituality, and ethical conduct. Jeremiah was born into a priestly family. He answered God's call and put aside his initial reluctance. His words and his work fueled a movement of accountability, speaking God's words to a people who were tempted to be too self-congratulatory. Jeremiah himself was sustained by a community of teachings and traditions that allowed him to grow and mature as a prophet. He led a movement, and then he was rightly called an elder prophet at the end of his lifetime. Now, I think we all know that everyone who is movement age doesn't wind up leading a movement, 
just as everyone who is old isn't necessarily an elder. Like Jeremiah, one must decide ultimately to say yes to God's call. Whatever God is asking us to do is the critical catalyst. When we, when we say yes to that call, that's what turns an 18-year-old into a movement leader or someone who is advanced in age into an elder. When we hear God's voice, we must lean into the possibilities of maturing and growing and actualizing God's gifts in God's time. And like Jeremiah had, uh, a culture that, that nurtures formation and honors the acceptance of a call from God is a critical element to being able to respond positively. As we enter into a new chapter uh, or a new academic year or a new season of life, what is God saying to us? How can we as a community create and sustain a culture that allows each of us to hear our own particular call and say yes to God. Well, the Fund for Theological Education has done some research into what kind of a, a culture allows people to say yes, to hear God's call and then, and then to actually say yes. And they've identified six elements that communities of faith who are good at nurturing a culture of call sharing common. So as we move through the seasons of life and as we particularly create an environment where our young persons are formed and nurtured, I hope we as a community, as a congregation, can keep these six characteristics of a healthy, responsive community in front of us. So here are the six elements. The first of these is that the pastors and the people use the language of call. Now, now Brian, Pastor Brian and I use call very easily. Maybe not all of us do, but I wanna encourage you to use that word, to think in terms of call, to think in terms of not just coincidence or maybe even bad luck, but in terms of call. And, and to do this for each other. Essentially, we are the mothers and fathers of each other, helping each soul among us to respond to his or her own calls. We need to discuss call, to question each other about it, to be familiar with the many call stories in the Bible. We need to ask each other regularly, and particularly when we are discerning a next step or facing a challenge, what is God calling you to do in this moment? What do you hear God saying? How are you potentially being asked to grow more into the person God formed you to be while you were still in the womb? The second element is that the congregation lives out Matthew 25. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you visited me. When a congregation is intentional about the building blocks of a just and compassionate society, it is easier to see where God is leading. At Epworth, we do this in so many ways, 
But as long as there are hungry persons or persons in need of healing and care, incarcerated or a stranger in a strange land, we have work to do. Third, in congregations that have a healthy culture of call, every member is a minister, either implicit in what we do or explicit in mission and vision statements, preferably both. Each of us is called to be in ministry, whether that may be the ordained or the lay ministry. The fourth element of this kind of community is that the congregation cultivates a connection to the wider church and the wider world and looks beyond itself. When we ask, in the words of the poet Mary Oliver, what will we do with our wild and precious lives, we want the scope of the possible answers to be big. We need to always know that our actions and hopes can and should be on the level of transformation, just as the Ferguson front line never forgot. The fifth element lifted up by the Fund for Theological Education is that the congregation is directly involved in the support and the encouragement of those considering or preparing for professional ministry. One of the things that I appreciate so much about this congregation is that we are a teaching congregation. Annette Cayo told me uh, that when we were at annual conference this year, she counted over 30 people who had come through Epworth, mostly as seminarians. And next week, we will be joined by two pastoral interns for the coming year who will be doing their field education here at Epworth, Akesa Fakava, who is a student at Claremont School of Theology, and Jacob Wilbur, who is a student at Pacific School of Religion. Both are preparing for professional ministry, and we look forward to welcoming them in that way into this congregation. These relationships enrich all of us by learning what is happening at the seminary and the way that those learnings that our seminarians are partaking in filter into our conversations. And our seminarians have an experience of serving in a loving, supporting, and encouraging community. And finally, sixth, the congregation, in the words of the study done by the Fund for Theological Theological Education, makes more of itself. The congregation makes more of itself. In other words, the congregation is about growth, is about being expansive. Members are always searching for ways to honor the wonderful creation God made us to be doing so with joy and discernment, and this effort causes transformation and growth. God has something to say to each of us today. The world needs the gifts and presence and faithfulness of each of us. The good news is that we are not expected to be experts or to be perfect in responding to these calls. The old saying goes, God does not call the equipped, God equips the called. (laughs) Ask each other, where do you feel called to serve? How is God's voice asking you to manifest more peace or love or justice in the world? Where do you need to take a risk? Where do you need to push yourself? Where do you need to be out on the front line? In our answering, whatever our age, 
May we know we are surrounded by a community that will support and encourage us. Indeed, before we were born, we were consecrated for this very work. Amen.